The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. wonderful to worship with you this morning, and now in our worship, we turn our attention to God's Word, and I want to invite you to join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We come to the very end of the study of this book. When we started this study, I told you that even though your New Testament is laid out for you in a logical fashion, that is, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you have a book of history, that's the book of Acts, the story of the New Testament church, and then after that you have the epistles, which are letters from the apostles to the churches that they started. That's a logical layout that you have in your New Testament. But actually, the very first writing of the New Testament era is First Thessalonians. So when the church in Thessalonica uh, is started by the Apostle Paul, they, are, they, they receive the gospel that is given to them orally. They, they don't have anything except an Old Testament. They have the 39 books of the Old Testament. And to be honest, mostly a Greek church, they might have not even had a complete Old Testament. And then they only have one book of the New Testament. That's 1 Thessalonians, when Paul leaves and writes them this letter. Later, they would get 2 Thessalonians, so they would have two books of the New Testament. So they respond to the to the gospel as it's preached to them. Paul teaches them, but when he leaves, they've got some questions. And so the letter is answering their questions. When Paul gets to chapter 4, he answers their question about the day of the Lord, that is the, the return of Christ Jesus and the rapture of the church. And you find that in the second half of chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5. When Paul gets done talking about the rapture of the church, then what would we expect would come next? I I would expect uh, world missions or evangelism or powerful discipleship passage. No, he talks about how you and I should act in the body of Christ. It's it's ecclesiology. It's it's the church. What should the church look like? How should the church act? And, And we discover that when we, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus himself, children of the heavenly father, when we act accordingly, when we act like the children of royalty that we are, and we act like we're called out from the world, and we are indeed called out, then the, the world regards us in an entirely different way. We have a, then we have an authentic witness to them. So what does that look like? Well, back in verse 12, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, the first part of this is how we respond to pastors and elders. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love, because of their work. So this is how we respond to those that are more mature than us in the faith. Then the passage continues, how do we respond to those that are less mature than we are in the faith? Verse 14, and we urge you brothers to number one, admonish the idle. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. Number three, help the weak. Number four, be patient with them all. 
Then the Apostle Paul talks about our relationship to unbelievers. He says in the next verse, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. That's the church. And to everyone. That's our relationship to an unbelieving community that we live among and who we are with. So when we complete that part of the passage, the Apostle Paul now takes the very last of this chapter And he's going to talk about our relationship with the Lord. So, our relationship with pastors and elders, those more mature than us. Our relationship with those that are less mature than us. Our relationship to the world around us, the unbelieving world. And then, what should my relationship to the Lord look like? What are the the daily principles that guide my relationship with the Lord? Now, I, I want to tell you this from the very beginning. This is not a complicated sermon. As a matter of fact, this is among the simplest of all the sermons that I've ever taught or preached. I could teach this with some some different vocabulary and a couple of different illustrations. I could teach this to first graders this morning. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we want to make the Bible really complicated. And sometimes we even want to think that it's complicated so we can use that as an excuse or a rationale of why we're not following the Lord the way we should. And what Paul is going to make clear first to the church at Thessalonica, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to us this morning, is that understanding what it means to follow the Lord is really simple. In fact, let me let me just make a confession for many preachers that I know. Sometimes we want to make it sound complicated so you think we're smart when we explain it. And it's not complicated. Jesus said, unless we become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. So how simple are the principles that guide our daily walk with the Lord Jesus? Let's begin in verse 16. Rejoice always. That's the whole verse. Some of you uh, say, you know what? I'm old. I can't, I can't memorize scriptures anymore. Here, let's read this together. Rejoice always. Now, without reading it, just say it from memory. Rejoice always. You just memorized a verse. You can do this. How hard is this verse to understand? Rejoice always. You know, uh, when we talk about people... In the world, we tend to talk, we, sometimes we do this, we talk about them in two groups. People who see the glass half empty and people who see the glass half full. And sometimes we kind of talk like, well, whichever person you are, that's who you are for all the rest of your life. Like you can never change. I heard a story one time about some counselors and psychologists that found these two brothers. Uh, their parents actually brought them for counseling. One was always negative, always critical. He always saw everything as terrible. The other brother was always positive. Same parents, same household. They ate the same food, same training. One was always negative. One was always positive. So the counselor, uh, in conjunction with the parents, they decided to do this little, this little uh, a test on them. So when it came to Christmas, they gave them opposite presents. To the boy that was always negative, they gave a pony. He got a pony. What every kid wants, he got a pony. He went outside. He didn't even smile. He said, oh, no. He says, a pony. He said, I'm going to have to brush him and take care of him. He said, when I get on him, he'll probably buck me off. I'll break my leg. I'll have medical bills. He's a little kid. 
He's already thinking of everything terrible about a pony. To the other kid that was always positive, they said, your gift is in the backyard. He went in the backyard, and they had dropped a great pile of manure. And, and they, they told him his gift was in the backyard. So he got there before the adults. He just ran ahead of them. When they got there, he was in the middle of the manure, and he was throwing it up like this. He was going, yippee, woohoo!" And they said, what are you happy about? He said, all this manure? He said, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Well, sometimes we kind of think you just are who you are. But what we read from Scripture is that as we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God to be reformed into the fashion of Jesus Christ himself, whoever you are, God changes that and he makes you a new creation in Christ. In fact, I think that rejoicing is one of the evidences of sanctification, if you can rejoice all the time, it, it shows that you are moving forward in your walk with the Lord. So the first part of everyday fellowship with Jesus, rejoice always. Verse, uh, verse 17, the next verse, very short, very staccato, all of these. Pray without ceasing. So not only should we always rejoice in the Lord, but we should always be talking with the Lord. Now, purposely here in the point, I, I use the phrase talking with the Lord because sometimes when we use the word prayer, uh, we get the idea that we can't pray. When I was a boy growing up uh, a long time ago in church life, there were some men that occasionally, when my father was the pastor, he would call on these men to pray, and they would pray these ornate, uh, eloquent Shakespearean, King James kind of prayers. Do you know what I'm talking about? O thou most almighty God, we ask that thou leavest thither and come hither. And as a boy, I was like, in hither and thither? We ask that thou comest and not goest. And I, I, I thought for a little bit as a boy that I couldn't pray because I couldn't pray like that. Mm, that's a myth. The, the word prayer is to, to, to talk, to dialogue. In fact, in this passage, really what it says is we are to have this ongoing, never-ending conversation. That's all it is. Conversation with God. You don't even have to start with, dear Heavenly Father, or end in, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It shouldn't really ever start and it shouldn't really ever end. It's to be continual prayer. Let me, let me tell you something about continual prayer. Continual prayer, if you'll learn it and you, and you start to live in the presence of God, will, will help you tremendously with temptation. Because one of our struggles when we give into temptation is because we have forgotten the presence of Jesus. There are a lot of sins you wouldn't sin if Jesus was right there with you, right? Well, he is right there with you, and continual prayer reminds us of that. Now, in some senses, uh, rejoice always and pray without ceasing are twins. They go together. We stop rejoicing when things are bad, and we stop praying when things are good. We don't rejoice because we think, well, this is bad stuff. And we don't pray because everything's so good. We forget to pray. We don't need to pray. We got plenty of money. The job's good. The kids are doing okay. They got good report cards. Nobody had to go to the doctor. And everything's so good, we don't pray. But when things are bad, we pray. And when things are good, we rejoice. And so we're to rejoice always. And, and we're to pray without ceasing. There's a third thing that we read here in these uh, short little verses that in the chapter. 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, verse 18, and we are to give thanks in all circumstances. So we find then that a grateful heart, a thankful heart, is a part of what God desires in this ongoing daily communication with him. And so let's talk about some things that we should be thankful for. We can, we can be lost on this, but let's stop and think about it. How many of you are thankful that your sins are forgiven? Say amen. How many of you are thankful you're not going to hell? Say amen. How many of you are thankful that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Say amen. How many of you are thankful that the Holy Spirit resides in you? Say amen. How many of you are thankful that that Holy Spirit will never leave you and never forsake you? Say amen. How are you doing with thankfulness? I could keep going. How many of you are thankful that you're healthy enough to be here? I mean, we could keep going. The problem for us is we focus on the bad, we get consumed with it, and we forget that there's so much to be thankful for. Now, I'm not saying that this life isn't hard. This is, this is, it's hard on this planet. It's a fallen planet. It's depraved. It's full of sin. Wars and rumors of wars. You know, last weekend in Chicago, 11 were killed, homicides, and 200 wounded in gunfire. Not Afghanistan, Chicago. Life can be hard here. You can go to the doctor. He can say you have cancer, you have heart disease. You need to have this surgery. One of our men, Cliff Balster, he had to have emergency surgery this morning at 8. I haven't heard word yet. It's a part of this life, this world. This world can be hard. But if we rejoice always, if we pray without ceasing, if we're continually thankful, then we will discover it does something for our souls. And that soul, regenerated with the instruction of God's word, begins to walk with God in a different manner. What manner is that? What does it look like? Well, the verse continues. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. And now, taking all of these together, rejoice in the Lord, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When we do these things, we are always fulfilling the will of God, the will of the Lord. Uh, in, in modern 2018 Church Life America, when most of you come and talk to me and the conversation is about the will of the Lord or the will of God, you say, I want to know the will of God, you're thinking about a decision that you have to make. You're like, I, I want to know if I take this job, is it the will of God? If I, if I move, make this move, buy this house, if I do this thing, if I make this investment, we think of the will of God in terms of decisions that we make. First Thessalonians 5 doesn't teach that. 1 Thessalonians 5 says you don't look for, you don't seek to find the will of God you live the will of God because you rejoice always, you pray without ceasing, and you constantly give thanks. And if you do these things, then you are in the will of God. As a matter of fact, if you have this kind of relationship with God, always rejoicing, always thinking, always praying and talking, because the conversation never stops with God, when you get to the place where you have to ask him about a job, an investment, a house, or a decision, it's just the natural flow of life. Some of you, that's not your natural, your natural flow of life. So when you stop and pray and you come to the throne of God and say, God, I need to know your will, you're a newcomer there. He hadn't heard from you in a long time. You show up to God like a spoiled spiritual brat. I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. Maybe that's why you don't hear the voice of God. But the one who continually rejoices, continually is grateful, continually talking to God, then talking to God about that next thing is what you do. You talk to God all day, every day, anyway. 
And of course you hear the voice of God. Many of you, when when you're around believers who say, God spoke to me, God said to me, I heard God's voice. You're like, how does that happen? It happens because you pray without ceasing. Now, are any of these things hard? Did any of these things need a definition of a Greek word that you didn't know? Did any of these things need a seminary education or diploma or degree? Rejoice always. Pray without stopping. Always give thanks. Yeah, I can really teach that at the first grade level. That's so simple that we should all be walking in a vibrant relationship with God, shouldn't we? I mean, let's be honest. It's so simple. How can you blow that? And yet we do. So the Apostle Paul gives us three warnings about the things that disrupt our continuous fellowship with the Lord. So it's really easy. It's really easy. Rejoice. Be grateful. Talk to God all the time. That's all it is. That's all it is. Except that we blow it because here's the things that we do. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Uh, the word quench is a really, really great word here. It's the same word that we use when we say you, you, you douse a fire. You quench a fire. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as a fire. Jesus said, John the Baptist baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you with fire. On Acts chapter 2, that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, he said on each believer like cloven tongues of fire. So the Holy Spirit is often represented as that fire, that, that Holy Spirit that purifies and burns in our lives. That's why we have passion for the Lord Jesus, except when we quench him. How do you quench the Holy Spirit? Well, primarily there's two ways, but it doesn't break like 50-50. It breaks like 90-10. There are two ways in which we quench the Spirit. 90% of the time, we quench the Holy Spirit by our disobedience. We know right, we know wrong, we, we know what the Word says, we know what God tells us to do, and we just choose to do what we want to do. We decide Jesus is not the master of our lives. We decide we are not going to operate, operate by faith. I'm going to do what I think is best for me to do, and I disobey the Lord. And so when I disobey the Lord, the Holy Spirit still resides there. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. Your soul is not vacation property for the Holy Spirit. It's permanent residence. He comes to indwell you, but you quench the Holy Spirit. So, so when I choose to disobey the Lord, I lose his anointing. I lose his, the fellowship, the sweetness of the fellowship and the joy of the Lord. I lose the blessing of the Lord. I lose the protection of the Lord. God does not make this deal where I get the Holy Spirit and I get his protection and joy and fellowship and anointing and power while I do whatever I want. God doesn't make that deal. That's preposterous. So when we decide that's the deal we want, we quench the Holy Spirit. This is the story in the Old Testament of King David. King David was anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. He had the Holy Spirit of God on him in a way that nobody else did in the Old Testament. But one day he saw Bathsheba and he decided he would violate God's rules and commands and he committed adultery with her. And when Nathan the prophet came and he confronted David with his sin, We have the result of that in the 51st Psalm. And in the 51st Psalm, David in his confession, in his repentance, says, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. 
He had lost the joy. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the scripture does not say, restore my salvation. He didn't lose his salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But he lost the sweetness of the fellowship with God. He lost the joy of the Holy Spirit. He, he lost the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the protection of the Holy Spirit. He lost all of that. And he said, restore that to me. He had quenched the Holy Spirit. I told you there were two reasons why we quenched the Holy Spirit. Number one, the biggest reason by far is disobedience. The second way we quench the Holy Spirit is when God works in our lives and somebody sees it and they see the power of it and they say, how did that happen in your life? And we take credit for what God did. It's pride. It's hubris. It's arrogance. When we take credit, when we take God's glory, when someone says, how did that happen? Instead of using that moment to share faith in Christ and how wonderful God is, we say, well, it's because I'm smarter than the average bear. And you're not. And when we take God's glory, God's glory departs and the Holy Spirit is quenched. So we have this admonition. It's simple, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord, pray without ceasing, give thanks to God. How how can we blow something so simple? We quench the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. There's another warning here, warning number two. In verse 20, do not despise prophecies, verse 21, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So the second warning here about what the things that break our continuous fellowship with the Lord is that we should not despise the prophetic teaching of God's word. Now, uh, be reminded of this. When uh, Paul writes this letter to the church at Thessalonica, they don't have a New Testament. In fact, this letter is the first book of the New Testament. They don't have one. So what God did for the early church is he put prophets in their midst to speak the word of God, because they didn't have a written word of God. But I want you to think about who a prophet is and what he does, whether it's Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet. The prophet's job is to speak, to teach, to proclaim the word of God. The prophet can use history. He can use the things that are past to teach the word of God. He can use current events to teach the word of God, or he can use future events that haven't happened yet to proclaim the word of God. Because the future events that haven't happened yet, because that's so incredibly mind-blowing, that's what we associate with a prophet. We say, oh, if someone tells the future, they're a prophet. No, a prophet can use any one of those, maybe all three of those, to teach the word of God. If you'll study your prophets in your Old Testament, major and minor prophets, you'll discover that many of them didn't prophesy the future at all. Except in this realm, if you don't turn back to God, if you don't turn from your sins, you're headed to certain destruction. That's a prophecy about the future. But many of them didn't, uh, didn't prophesy the future. They used current events in Israel's life to say, hey, you should be turning to God right now. So that's what a prophet does, whether Old Testament or New Testament. And so the passage says that you are not to despise the prophetic teachings of the Word of God. Now, I doubt if anybody in this room would walk out on the main street after the worship service and say, I despise the Word of God. I doubt anybody would do that in the church. But if you take your Bible that you have and you shelve it wherever you shelve it and you don't open it up all week, until you go looking for it uh, next Sunday morning to come, and you haven't spent any time in the Word of God, it's the same thing. You've 
You've despised it. You've neglected it. Truly held it in contempt. It's the revelation of the Almighty God Himself to you, and you didn't take any time at all to look at it. It disrupts fellowship with the Father, disrupts fellowship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. It disrupts continuous walking with the Lord Jesus. And so the scripture says, we are not to despise the prophetic utterances, the prophetic word of God. And then there's a last warning here. It's in verse 22. Warning number three. What are the things that break our fellowship? Verse 22, abstain from most every form of evil. Is that what your Bible says? Of course it doesn't say that. Of course what it says is abstain from every form of evil, not most every form of evil. But that's actually the way we live, isn't it? When we come to Christ, uh, the thing we do first is we give up all the big stuff, the stuff that's easily seen. We decide, you know what? I'm not going to murder anymore. I think I'm going to give that up. And uh, I'm not going to steal from my boss anymore and embezzle that. I'm going to give that up. I'm not going to uh, commit adultery anymore. Well, we give up the things that pr- probably would end in incarceration. And then as we grow in the Lord, we have the next kind of batch of stuff that we give up. And, and we start growing in Christ. But there's always a few little pet favorite sins that we don't give up hidden in the closet of our hearts, hidden from our husband, hidden from our wife, hidden from the kids, hidden from the parents, the ones we like, the ones we hold on to, the ones that we think aren't that bad. It's the way we say a little white lie. And yet within every single little sin is the seed that grows to the destruction of our lives. You see, you don't really hold sins. Sins hold you. And every single one of those will destroy you. And so Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. Wow, that's a simple sermon. That's really, really simple. At the turn of last century, uh, 1900s, uh, there was a professional baseball player who was living the life of a professional baseball player. He had a girlfriend in every town where he played. He, uh, he went out and got drunk uh, with the guys. He had a lot of money that he just spent it however he wanted, but he didn't have purpose and he didn't have meaning. And he was really starting to doubt really what life was about because he had fame and accolade and money, but he didn't have anything else. On one particular day, he stopped where there was a tent and a preacher was preaching and he heard the gospel and he gave his life to Christ. And it changed him and it changed him dramatically. So dramatically that he quit baseball and he went to preaching himself. His name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was his name and because he was a well-known professional baseball player, when they would advertise that he was going to speak, they'd get huge crowds. They'd get crowds of thousands that would come in buildings and under tents to hear him tell what we would just call his testimony, how he came to life in Christ. And he began to preach and hundreds of people would get saved at all of these uh, crusades and revival meetings where Billy Sunday would preach. Well, uh, Billy was saved in the kind of a, a movement that was underneath the Presbyterian Church. And so the Presbyters, the elders of the Presbyterian Church, decided, Billy, Sunday's preaching everywhere. If he's preaching, we should ordain him. 
And so the way ordination works, not just for the Presbyterians, but really all denominations, is you get the, you get the young guy, the pastor, the one who's called a ministry, and there's a cross-examination of him to see if he knows his Bible, to see if he knows God's Word. And so these uh, well-to-do, might I say a little stuffy academic pastors got together to cross-examine Billy Sunday. One of them said, uh, Brother Sunday, speak to us about soteriology. Billy said, I, I, don't, I don't know what that word is. And one of them said, the doctrine of salvation. He said, I believe in salvation. I believe that Jesus died so we could be saved by grace through faith. And then there was a long, awkward pause. He was done. Whew, a sigh. Someone said, uh, Brother Sunday, tell us what you feel about ecclesiology. He said, I don't know what that word means. He said, the doctrine of the church. He said, I believe in the church. He said, I believe the church should be the salt and light to the community. And he was done with everything he knew about the church. Another long, awkward pause. They asked him about this ology and that ology. He didn't know those words. He didn't have any seminary training. I'm not sure he graduated from high school. Finally, this awkward silence was broken by a man who stood up in the back and he said, can anyone here deny the fact that the hand of God is on Billy Sunday? And not a man could. No one could deny the fact that the Holy Spirit of God was on Billy. And so he said, I vote we ordain him. Well, they did vote to ordain him that day, but the cross-examination shook him up. He had some doubts and about what he didn't know about the Bible and his own calling and self-esteem. And so when everybody left, that same man who had moved that they would ordain him, he said, he said, Billy, he said, let me tell you about the whole Christian life. He said, the whole Christian life is this. He said, you need to talk to Jesus every day. You need to listen to Jesus every day. And you need to tell someone about Jesus every day. And he said, that's the whole thing. You know what I want to tell you this morning? Based on 1 Thessalonians 5, your walk with the Lord, it's not a complicated jigsaw puzzle full of Greek definitions and ologies. It's you opening your heart like a child by faith to rejoice, to pray, to thank God, to read his word, to abstain from evil, to not quench the spirit. And if you would do those things, the power of the Holy Spirit would come down on your life in such an incredible way that people would think that you found some incredibly new, radical, revolutionary faith. It is revolutionary, but it's simple. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. I wonder this morning, has God spoken to you? Have you heard him speak to you about some things in your life? Had you started to rationalize why you, you weren't closer to God, or you weren't walking with Jesus every day? And this morning the Holy Spirit has come back and he said to you, unless you're like a child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Won't you say yes to that. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. No one's going to embarrass you or come to you. But I wonder how many of you would signify by raising your hand, I want to recommit my life this morning to walking with the Lord every day. And you just raise your hand and say, that's my commitment. 
Oh, praise God. Praise God all over the room. God bless you. Father, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. We stand naked before you. We ask your forgiveness for the times that we've tried to take your word and make it complicated when you've made it so simple for us. So all it demands is our simple, childlike obedience to walk with you, to talk with you, to rejoice in you, to thank you, to be obedient to you, to read your word. How simple is that? So we ask your forgiveness for the ways we've rationalized our own disobedience and we've quenched your spirit. And we pray this morning for a new zeal in our hearts, a new fire of the Holy Spirit in us. Not because we've understood some new, incredible, hidden truth of your word, but because we've understood the very plain word that you've revealed to us. So Father, we pray this morning you take these recommitments by the power of your Holy Spirit and renew in us a right spirit. This we pray in the most wonderful, precious, and holy and only name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Philippians 4 is a parallel passage to 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.